He laughed, a sharp sound like wood splintering, then said, I can't do this except at your direction. He leaned back against her legs and turned his head back to look up at her. My queen, he said softly, you can't tell me I am a grown-up hero and still keep me tied to you like a little boy. Let me go. Oh, Jen, when I said Edith expected more of you, I didn't mean this. She sat and looked at her hands for a long time. All right, she said at last. Go and steal the Queen of Atolia. I know the thing is that he can steal anything, including things that conventionally you might not be able to steal, but they do have a word for stealing people. It's kidnapping. That's definitely the activity that's being engaged in here. Welcome back, kidnapping fans. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Italian Archives, the Queen's Thief reread podcast. It's April 21st, 2019, Easter, if that's your thing. We have a beast of a chapter for you today, in which something like eight months pass while the war progresses. More than that? Yeah. Maybe 11. (laughs) I don't know. Whatever. Like, it could be a year. And everybody wonders who to blame, and Jen flirts, drinks, disappears, reappears, and proposes a daring plan. So we are about halfway through the book, which is an exciting milestone. This is probably like the last chapter of build-up, and then after this it's just going to be breakneck downhill. Mm -hmm. Briefly, uh, Atolia keeps securing islands in the summer, then the windstorms come, Sunus burned the Urkis forest and advanced upwards but lost that battle. Atolia sent raiding parties to burn out farms, the snow came, and both armies retreated, and then... For the winter. And then, um, spring floodwaters kept Edis closed. Everyone planted crops. Sunus attacked and secured Thegmus. Atolia blockaded it. And then, there's so much that I can't even tell if it's all in this chapter or not, but I think Sunus got more ships from an anonymous continental yes. power, and they broke the blockade at Thegmus and resupplied him for a land assault. So, Atolia and Sunus are kicking each other repeatedly, while Edis is just hiding behind some trees. (laughs) (laughs) So, what all of these details give us is a sense of real stakes and uncertainty with the war. You don't know who's going to win. It's always turning around. And there are more factors than just these three countries. There's the continental powers. There's the Mede. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's clear in this chapter that uh, things really could have gone very differently. It says in here, in just a brief sentence, Edith is talking to Jen in the winter that um, she says Atolia will take Sunus by late spring or summer. Mm-hmm. So, like, if things had gone differently and Edith hadn't had Jen kidnap Atolia, Atolia could have been ruling Sunus mm-hmm. and, yeah. like, uniting those two countries. So all this is is happening, and it's it's unfurling very fast. Even though a lot of time does go by in this chapter, but there's there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. While Jen is sort of still lying in wait, but you get the sense that he needs to take action sooner rather than later. These events do turn on a dime, and they do depend a lot on the actions and decisions of individual people. But there's also the question of how much of this is being directed and influenced by the gods. Mm -hmm. And that's a a really important idea in this chapter. It starts out, the first line of the chapter is, 
The country of Edis prayed, and as if in answer, the Atesian winds came late. And maybe it was in answer. We mm-hmm. don't know. Because so much of, of the outcome of this war is based on chance, or in other words, factors that only the gods control. The weather. The snows came early, which is the best possible time for them to come for the Edesians, and then the rain kept everyone off in the spring, so. And the Edesians are protected fundamentally by their landscape in the first place. Mm-hmm. Edis and Eugenides show that they're really preoccupied with how much of this is divine will. Eugenides wants to know if people are dying and suffering because the gods are, have chosen to have it so, um, and they're talking about who who ultimately is responsible for the war that Edis sent him there. He fell into Atolia's trap. She set the trap and sprang it because Sunus hounded her, etc. So whom finally do we blame for the war? The gods, is what Jen asks. And it's also interesting how he says Sunus hounded her with the support of the mages, who fears the Mede, and the Mede emperor, I suppose, is under his own pressures. Mm-hmm. And so there's no real evil person yeah there's no end to it either it's all politics it's all a web and you could blame the gods but the gods are not malicious Mm. they just are yeah and they can't understand why the gods are doing what they're doing which helen also talks about she says we can't ask the gods to explain themselves and i for one don't want to she also says if i am a pawn of the gods it is because they know me so well not because they make up my mind for me which is one of my favorite helen lines yeah and that's such a big a big question in this series that has so much divine intervention and you see that they are the influencers of this entire this entire world that this is really a fundamental a fundamental question of a series like this mm-hmm. is when you do have literal gods walking around how much of it is them and how much of it is you it really illustrates this fundamental confidence that Helen has in who she is. There's also some foreshadowing here. Is this the will of the great goddess that Edis be destroyed? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, of course, pre-volcano. Yeah. <laughs> Once that uh, comes into being in the story, uh, Edis will receive that information, that premonition, but it's her choice what to do about that. Mm-hmm. And also, if I'm getting the timeline correctly, I think at this point in the story, she has already had the volcano dreams since mm. midwinter. Yeah. And so she says, right I after she that. said that quote, that um, she doesn't know, but she believes that there are still Hephaestus people. So you just said that this shows that Helen has a lot of confidence in herself, and I also think this shows that she has a lot of confidence in the gods, a lot of mm. trust that... They know what's best, and they have their best interests at heart. So that's another very interesting aspect of the series in terms of religion, is that once various characters do accept the gods' real presence in their lives, they all have that base level of, I guess we can call it faith, that they know they're there, but then the amount of trust they do or don't have in the gods varies. Mm -hmm. Another important thing... uh that we can say about Helen based on that, I think, is that Helen knows how to trust other people. Mm -hmm. And that's part of her brilliance, that she builds the right networks. 
and she uh, delegates at the right time. Mm-hmm. And she understands when somebody can uh, support her in the right way and, and how to, how to, I don't want to say capitalize on that, but. But yeah, capitalize on that. She's a good judge of other people. She is, yeah. This chapter also has a lot of hints at the best worst heteros, as my <laughs> friend Blythe from college calls them. Thank you, Blythe. Probably going to listen to this. During the conversation with Helen, where they have that conversation about the gods, uh, Jen raises one eyebrow. And Helen wonders again where he had picked up that particular facial expression. We talked about that last episode, how Jen is imitating Irene when he does that. Now it's been at least six months, so he's still going strong with that. <laughs> still now going strong with the habits. I don't know. Do you think that that's something he consciously does? Like it's I, almost an inside joke with himself, or is it totally I automatic? Think so. I would have. I think it at least started out. Mm-hmm. as something conscious probably an inside joke and then maybe it becomes automatic as yeah. he as he does it more and more and more because he does it all the time in king of tolia also yeah and that's one of uh his like identifying features according to costas mm-hmm. is that he raises an eyebrow like that <laughs> when he's amused and then he also when he's talking with the magus jen says um the king of sunus has caused a lot of bloodshed by wanting a woman he can't have and he says, maybe I should be more sympathetic. That's one of those things you do not <sighs> notice on your first read. Definitely not. Uh, he also goes to talk to Helen to ask her permission to, quote, run away and hide. Um, which, really, she should have known he was up to something. Yeah. If there's anything we've learned, is that when Jen leaves your line of sight, he's doing something shady. And if he comes and requests permission to leave your line of sight for ten days... All bets are off. (laughs) She says that he's wallowing in despair, and he says, It's worse than despair I am hiding. Ah! That's so, like, at this point, he's, like, he's... His love is a painful thing that's inside of him. Because he doesn't think there's any remedy at all. There's nothing he will be able to do about this. But then, something else related to this I really wanted to bring up that I never thought about on previous rereads. So, is at the end of this chapter, this is when after these, after those 10 days away, he uh, comes back and presents his plan to go kidnap the Queen of Atolia to the entire council and to Edis. Mm-hmm. And so, the book has like the text of most of the plan he's explaining like we can go uh across across the dystopia and this is how many soldiers she has and like he goes into different nuances of the plan but you don't hear him say to anyone and then i'm gonna marry her (laughs) but he says at the beginning i think eugenity said quietly that i could eliminate the instability of the atolian queen Mm -hmm. which is what marriage would do but then my question is, do you think he mentioned marriage in that meeting and we just didn't see it? And I think yes, because mm-hmm. at the end of the chapter when he's talking privately with Edith about this and she's saying, you're insane, I can't believe you want to do this. This is like seeing a child burn himself on a pot and then saying he wants to go back, he wants to climb into the fire next. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Eugenides says, I am a member of your royal family. There is no one else to send. She may be a fiend from hell to make me feel this way, but even if I have to hate myself for the rest of my life, this is what I want. So I think in between, he's told her. He at least told Helen about it. But if he didn't make that declaration about marriage in the council meeting, I don't know when he could have told her. Because the text we get with the two of them together starts with her saying to the council at large, I would speak with my thief, and then they all leave, and then you see the entirety of their conversation. So he doesn't tell her then, but he has all this talk about feelings. (laughs) So that made me think that he's already brought up the concept of marriage because then why would he say there's no one else to send i'm part of your family because they could send other soldiers who aren't part yeah, of the family just gonna kill her if they were or... just gonna kill or kidnap her or whatever there's also a really great line back in the conversation where he's requesting to leave where edith says if she ever had you again she'd kill you immediately she was a fool to do otherwise but eugenides she leaned over to meet his gaze directly. She won't have you. Uh, so there's a break between the first half of that sentence and the last half that she won't have you. And Helen is obviously saying she won't catch you. Mm-hmm. But there's a cool double meaning there because she True. won't have you can also mean she won't marry you. Yeah. And, and why does he love her? I mean, that's obviously going to be an ongoing question throughout, especially from here on out in this book. Yeah. He doesn't know either. Yeah. No one knows. It's a long-standing thing mm-hmm. from before all of this, yeah. from before this violence. But it sort of comes to a head post the violence. Yeah. Uh, that's when he has to act on it. Yeah. And that's a really interesting thing, that his feelings about her were maybe always something that was just in the background, Mm -hmm. and then this horrible event happens, and he becomes intertwined with her in a way that he wasn't before, Mm -hmm. and... He's either going to repair that in some way or combust. Yeah. I mean, is there an element of, like, Jen is just in love with danger? You know, I'm actually going to go ahead and say yes about that. That's his whole life. That's his whole (laughs) job. He was climbing into the hypercar systems of enemy palaces at age, like, seven. (laughs) I think... As part of his thieves training, his grandfather probably had to find some way to make danger, like, fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a game. How else How else are you supposed to teach a six-year-old to learn how to jump from one building to another building 20 feet away? You know? I also think that a lot of Irene's qualities that people think makes her a monster um, are things that eugenides recognizes in her from himself yeah and stuff that he he doesn't like to admit about himself yeah definitely so i think that i think that part of the reason that he was so adverse to the idea of being in a situation where he would have to kill anyone 
or have to make any of those life or death decisions is because he knows that he is capable of great ruthlessness. Mm-hmm. And it says in the King of Atolia that one of the reasons he's holding back from being king is because he's afraid of his own desire for power. Yeah. That he's not used... He is used to wielding power, but he's used to doing it in secret, mm-hmm. not in the open. And he sees... I mean, Irene is also somebody who didn't expect to have power and uh, didn't necessarily want it, but had to assume that role. There's more about the political versus the personal as well. Helen and Jen talk about how no one had been more eager to avenge Jen than his cousins, uh, even though they had been dicks to him for his entire life. And Jen and the Magus discuss the political and personal reasons for Sunus wanting to marry Edith also, the Magus tells Jen that it's not just political. And Jen can't really uh, uh, fathom Helen being desirable, <laughs> even though she, she Rude. is. Yeah. Uh, the Magus describes her as magnetic, mm-hmm. uh, even though she's not a conventional idea of beauty. And Jen comes right out and says she's ugly. Like, what? And I, I mean, I think that's probably a case of like, ooh, my sister, ew. Yeah, yeah I think it's too close to her. <laughs> yeah. That's one of two, at least two times Helen's described as magnetic in some way, because she and Sophos, uh, Jen uses a metaphor for them, like they're like lodestones who have been drawing closer to each other since they met. Like, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. These the books are uh, extremely romantic yeah. at the end of the day. And just really beautiful metaphors, too. Yeah. Speaking of metaphors... Uh, there are some really uh, beautiful and very sad images in this chapter where um, Edith thought that he looked like a well-dressed funerary ornament. That's Jen in his fancy clothes. And so he's almost like in a state of like limbo between life and death mm. at this point. And they also talk about how he goes to visit the injured soldiers in the hospital and he's like a sacred relic to mm-hmm. them. And we also get a pretty graphic image of the aftermath of war there. He talks about men blown apart by the cannons. Yeah. Uh, Another image is that when Jen comes to announce his plan to the council, uh, nobody looks at him. Everybody's looking down at their hands. And then in the conversation at the very end that we read at the beginning, um, Helen also looks at her hands for a long time uh, before she answers him. And so they're all thinking of, of what they have and what he doesn't have. You know, I never realized that until you just said that. I thought they were just looking at their hands because that's what people do when they need to look somewhere. <laughs> I mean, also that. <laughs> I just of think it's only been once. But, but because you're right. twice. I think so, too. Yeah, I can't believe I never noticed that before. This chapter is also about the border between Jen's childhood and his adulthood. There are so many references to the fact that he's not a kid anymore. Mm-hmm. Helen says you aren't the boy hero anymore. And uh, Jen thinks that she's trying to say that he's not a hero anymore. He's like, what, was I ever? She's like, no, I mean that you you aren't a boy. Mm-hmm. You, you are an adult hero now. <laughs> he's like, oh, and, no. Yeah, that people... sounds like more responsibility. <laughs> and he's he's growing out of his clothes. We talked in the last episode about how he had grown out of his boots. Now he's growing out of his shirt. And he needs to shave now. This is, um, I mean, he's still very young. He's going to be called the boy king in King of Atolia a lot. Mm. But he's, um, he's not 
a, a, a snotty little boy anymore. He's a snotty grown man now. <laughs> He's a snotty grown man. <laughs> That's chapter 11. Next episode, we catch a glimpse of Irene and Kamet. Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atelianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed, blessed in, in your, your endeavors. endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, listen on Spotify. We are wherever you get your podcasts. No one knows.